Well, here's what we're doing. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, grab your Bibles. If not, Greg Burkhart. Um, yeah, I'm not even going to say it today. They already know you're good looking. And so if, uh, if you need a Bible, grab a Bible. Uh, we're going to be uh, opening God's Word. If you've never had a Bible before or you'd like a Bible, you can take one. Feel free. Um, if you don't know how to get around your Bible, just look at the person next to you and say, hey, can you help me figure out how to work this thing? Uh, it's totally cool. Uh, we've all had to start there. But let's open our Bibles up to 1 Corinthians. And uh, in fact, while we're doing that, could everybody stand up just in honor of God's word? Let's, uh, let's read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 together. That's where we're going to be today. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. It says this. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Jesus, would you please do a work in us today? God, we're going to talk about an issue that uh, is more difficult for sometimes, I know, me personally. Father, would you teach us what it means to live the cross every day? Would you teach us what it means to, to joyfully live the cross every day? Father, would you help us to believe it's way better for Jesus to live in us than for us to live in us? Would you do that supernatural work in your precious name? Amen. All right, have a seat. Is everybody doing okay? All right. It's fall. It's beautiful. Here's what we've been doing. We've been asking the question, and we'll just kind of start it off this way, with this idea, I've asked it, is Simi changing you? Or are you changing Simi? Now, again, you can put whatever town in there. If you're from Thousand Oaks, put Thousand Oaks in there. If you're from wherever. But for just right now, I'm from Simi Valley. Probably most people are here from Simi Valley. So the question we're asking out of the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're walking through it with this idea that we have a tendency to miss the point. There's this idea also that the point is Jesus, that the Holy Spirit is the power to pull this off. But we've been asking this question over and over of, are you missing the point? And the real question is, is how is Simi changing you, or how are you changing Simi? Now, I've been asking that question to myself, is where is Simi Valley changing me? And here's some of the ways in which I would say Simi Valley has been changing me, just so I can be honest about it. One is that I've always been a highly competitive person and a person that loves to achieve. I've now got kids in, like, youth sports. Oh, my goodness. My daughter runs cross country, right? So I'm out watching her the other day, and I'm like sitting there worried that she's not in the top five. And I'm like screaming at her like that one dad that you never want to be. And I remember my wife looking at me like, seriously? My son does BMX. Okay, I know nothing about BMX. But we get over to the track, and he gets last place every time. I'm that embarrassed dad that's like, oh, no, I got the last place kid. It's just weird how, right, it, it, it sticks to us in this weird way. And when I looked around at the other parents, I realized they're not much different than me. In fact, there's a weird way in which parents 
who didn't possibly achieve or who are done achieving now achieve through their children in a weird kind of, kind of weird way. The other thing that like, I realized that I'm afraid of is I'm afraid of being exposed for who I really am. In a lot of ways, we hide, don't we? Like I asked myself the question today, why did I wear a little bit baggier of a shirt today? It's because underneath it is not a sweet surprise. I was asking myself, why do I ride my bike as much as I've been trying to ride my bike? Is it because I think, oh, I just, I want to take care of the temple of God? No. I don't like what's under my shirt called a gut. I've also realized that since I've gotten back from my sabbatical, the amount of TV that I've been watching has been growing, and I've been asking myself the question, why did it grow? And it's because deep within me, there's this form of escapism that I don't want to have to deal with reality. It's so easy just to watch TV and check out for a little while. The other thing I've noticed is I am just a massive comfort seeker. I love comfort. The other day, I was coming home from work thinking, oh my goodness, I'm just going to go in and I'm going to sit on the couch and I'm just going to do nothing. So I get in the house and I look at my wife and I said, hey, baby, it's, it's been a bad day. You know, I've been dealing with all kinds of reprobate, terrible people. And <clears throat> I'm just going to go sit on the couch. And she goes, yeah, I've been dealing with reprobate people too. They're called your children. <laughs> your turn. <laughs> Right, we just have this thing within us in which we don't mean to, but Simi Valley, it just kind of who this city is and what we're about. There's all these little things, idiosyncrasies that we share in common. And if we're not careful, we begin to absorb into our lives the same thing. And I would venture to guess you're not much different, are you? In fact, probably some of those things in which I said you either can relate to or you remember or you're in the middle of. And I think all of us in here that know Jesus, we, we want to live for Jesus, don't we? Man, there's just this thing deep within us where I want to live for Jesus. I, I want to live this life in which I follow him with everything that I am, but I keep feeling like I get sucked back into this world in which everyone's telling you, be comfortable, be safe, be achievers, be all these different things, and to which now I believe this is what Paul is going to speak into it. He's going to give us the secret or the kind of the, the way in which he, in the midst of Corinth, which by the way, Corinth would have been the same exact way in a lot of ways is Simi Valley, how it was that he avoided getting sucked back into this dilemma that we face all the time of being comfort seekers, of being ones that are got caught, get caught up in escapism, whatever it is, just this way in which Simi Valley changes us. Now, where he's going to do this in, and if you got your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 2, I think the centerpiece of everything that he's going to talk about in 2, 1 through 5 is found in verse 2. Here's where he's going to land this idea of how he was able to stay focused and living for Jesus Christ in the way that he wanted to. And in verse 2, watch this. Here is kind of his, his way or his means and mechanism that he was able to stay focused on what the goal at hand was. Watch what he does. He says to them, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
He said, if you want to know how it was that I stayed focused on what was most important, is that I decided to stay, to, to, to stay focused on this idea of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, that's what I did. Now, that little word decided, look down in there. It, it's, a, it's a crucial word. We might probably better translate it, or we might understand it better as this idea of resolve. I resolved. In fact, the way that he he talks about it was, is that it's not so much that he just resolved one time, but the idea behind that word is, is that amongst you, I kept resolving over and over, day in and day out, that the focus of my life, what I was understanding, I was going to stay focused on knowing Christ, and I was going to stay focused on him crucified. I resolved every single day. But not only was it that he resolved to do that, but the other part of it, if you look down, you see that little word, no. I was going to preach a message today on Paul preaching Jesus. I was going to talk about expository preaching and why we do expository preaching. And all of a sudden we're in sermon prep and Robin Albany's looked at me and she goes, do you honestly think that's what Paul's trying to argue? I gave her a terrible answer. I got home at night. And I'm like, that can't be it. And I looked down at this little word, no, and I just started spending time on it to ask the question, really, what was Paul doing when he said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? That little word, no, what it means is, is to acquire information for the purpose of learning. He said, what I did was, is I made a resolve that I'm going to acquire information and specifically what he was going to acquire information on, he said, is I am going to acquire information on Jesus Christ. In other words, he said, I'm going to become a student of Jesus. I was sitting down with a friend of my mom. She's a lady in her kind of mid, late 50s and She's never had an iPhone before. And so I looked at her and I said, well, how are things with your iPhone? And she goes, oh, it was a terrible start. I go, really, what'd you do? And she goes, Todd, in order to learn this thing, I had to become a student of the iPhone. In order to know it and how it works and how it functions, she said, I had to become a student. In order to learn math, I have to be a student of math. In order to to learn language, I have to become a student of language. And when we decided that we were going to follow Jesus Christ, if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, what Chris talked about a little earlier in our Grow Live display, if I'm going to do that, I have to become a student of Jesus. I have to enter the school of Jesus. I need to know him, understand him. In fact, he even takes it a little bit further. Look, look at chapter 11, verse 1. You'll kind of see even more of what he meant by this idea of becoming a, a student of Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 1. He's going to call them to be imitators of me. Now watch this. Verse 1. As I am of Christ. That word imitators comes from this Greek word which means to mimic. So in other words, it's not just that Paul took in information about Jesus. It's not just that he sat down and he read about Jesus and the amazing work of Jesus. The idea was is that he read about Jesus and then he took it to the next step further. I mimicked him. What he did, I did. What he said, 
I said. He said, that's what I committed myself to doing while I was with you. I just studied Jesus, and out of my study of Jesus, I lived him in front of you. That's what I did. See, I think in some ways we forget the fact that when we are engaged in this following of Jesus, in order to follow him, I have to study him. I've got to know him. In fact, all of the New Testament up through the epistles, all of that is a story about, or is is this idea of helping you learn how to follow Jesus, to become a student of Jesus, to enter into the school of Jesus. That when you decided to follow him, in fact, from the Great Commission, it's not just that you get baptized, but then the next step is that we're going to teach you to what? Obey everything I've commanded you. Paul just said, that's what I devoted my life to. And when I look out over this group of people, here's the question I would have for you. I think oftentimes we say we want to be followers of Jesus, but are you a student of Jesus? Have you committed your life to knowing Jesus, to understanding Jesus, but then also to taking it to that next step of in your life then, Paul says, I imitated him. Now, it wasn't just that he imitated him, though. That's also part of verse 2. But he took it to this next place. See, I started thinking about in my life, what's the biggest obstacle to me imitating Jesus Christ? I sat down and I thought, yeah, sometimes my wife is an obstacle. (laughs) She's gone today. My kids are an obstacle. The people I work with are an obstacle. Isn't it weird how we think everyone else is an obstacle? And in the middle of all of it, we forget one very important person, which is who? Me. The greatest obstacle to your following of Jesus is you. And every day when you wake up, you are with you. And Paul understood this. This is why I think he wrote the very next thing that he wrote. It's not only that I am to now be a learner of Jesus, but I am to be a learner of what it means that Jesus Christ was crucified. Now with this, you've got to make a decision on what you're going to do with this idea of him crucified. See, on one end, when we talk about crucifixion, we mean the amazing work of Jesus in which when he was nailed to that tree, he was a substitute in our place, is that we understand I was a sinner, I deserved the punishment of God, but the reality was on the cross, Jesus Christ was placed there and he received the wrath of God in my place. That's called substitution. He redeemed me. He bought me out of sin. And as I look back on the past, I am so thankful and I have such a deep gratitude for what he did. But that's not the only way that crucifixion is used within the Bible. Go with me to Luke 9 and I'll show you another way in which it's used. So we can kind of try to decide here what's the best way to to understand what Paul said as I became a learner of Jesus crucified. Look at chapter 9 and verse 23. Here's the other way in which it's used. Watch this. Verse 
Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, on one level now, it's looking back at what Jesus Christ has done and being blown away by what Jesus Christ has done. And the other is this daily thing in which I face it, and I actually now have to, on an ongoing basis, every day, I am supposed to, in a a metaphorical way, grab this cross that Jesus Christ has for me. And in fact, the key word in here in verse 23 is to deny myself. Now, let me show you something. If you want to make one of these afterwards, I'll show you how to do it. I have a feeling this is going to be the fashion craze around see me after you see this. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I told you. On one level is this idea of the cross in our past. Now, what oftentimes when we talk about the cross, in fact, anytime anybody ever points up here, generally what we mean is a cross dealing with the past reality of what Jesus Christ has done, which is phenomenal. Like, I am so thankful to stand here today knowing that my sins are forever nailed to that tree. Amen? But when Jesus Christ said what he did in Luke 9, 23, he took the cross out of a past event And he intended to place it right in front of them as a, oh, did it break? Oh, no, it didn't. Okay. Maybe you don't want to buy it. But he intended to make it a present event. In other words, what he said was, is that while it's great to deal with the past reality of what Jesus Christ has done, he said, when by taking up your cross daily, I want it to be an ever-present event right now in your face. And what happens is, is the more and more we put it behind us, the more and more we deal as if somehow it's just a wonderful past event and we don't put it here, I promise you, you will never then count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus every single day. Jesus says, I want you to put this right in front of your face and I want you to remind yourself what it is to take up your cross and follow me. Now, I wouldn't recommend buying one of these as a means of reminding yourself. But the idea behind what Jesus is saying is so serious. See, I think when we come to know Jesus Christ, because we always focus on a past event, we forget the fact that when Jesus was actually sharing the gospel with people in Luke 14, all these people were coming to him thinking, oh, it's so phenomenal. We're going to get to go into Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ is going to conquer what all the Romans kick them out, start a kingdom, and we're going to have peace and safety and comfort, and everything is going to be great. And you, at that moment, Jesus Christ has to stop them. He turns around and looks at them and says, unless you hate your brother, your mother, your father, your sister, and even on your own life and take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. See, so often we present Jesus as this great way to escape from hell. And so everybody's going along so excited that we're going to escape from hell. Jesus did a past work. And so therefore now I don't have to suffer hell, which is a true statement in regards to what it means to follow Jesus Christ. But we're not given heaven yet. Jesus Christ did die to save us from hell, but he didn't die to save us from the cross. 
He died so that we might be glorified, but he didn't die so that we wouldn't be crucified. What that means is, is in order to advance the truth of who Jesus Christ is in this world, it will cost us. And if you think somehow that it's going to be comfortable and roses all along the way, then you are misunderstanding what Jesus Christ said. For Paul, he told them, all who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. Peter promised trials. James promised trials. John promised that people would hate us. And so for Paul, when he was thinking that way, he had the cross ever before him, and he defined what he did, not just by a past event, but this constant reality of what it meant to follow Jesus Christ, which was built out of the counting of the cost of following him. So when he says this idea, I decided to know Jesus Christ crucified, I believe what he's saying is, is that on a daily basis, I counted the cost. Not only did he acquire Jesus, but there's something else he did. Go with me to Galatians 2, just to kind of help you understand this. Galatians 2. Look at verse 20. Galatians 2, verse 20. He says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but look at this, but Christ who lives in me. Why does Paul then want to see himself as one who is crucified daily? His point is, is that he doesn't want Paul to live in him. He wants the truth of Christ to live in him. Go to Romans 6. I'll kind of show you from a different angle. Romans 6, just a few pages over. Look at verse 6. We know, verse 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, Todd, in the past, was nailed to that tree. But look at verse 11. Not only was I in the past, but you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not just a past event in which my sins were paid for. His point is, is that I have to appropriate that every single day. I need to learn how to die daily. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Every single day you wake up, who are you thinking about? me. I get up in the morning, it's me. I go and I do the various things that I do because of me. Me, me, me just dominates, but you also know that when me, me, me dominates, it's a mess. When me dominates, marriages don't get along. When me dominates, families are in disorder. When me dominates, workplaces don't go very well. When me dominates, our neighborhood's a mess. Me has a phenomenal capacity to cause problems. And what Paul says is the beauty of what it is to come to know Jesus Christ is that Paul died so that Christ might live. 
Todd has to die daily in order for Christ to live in him. In other words, it's not just that I would put on Christ. It talks about this in Colossians 3. But that I would take off the old Todd. That the old Todd, with all of his problems, with all the ways in which he is focused on himself, he must die daily in order for him to be able to pull off this idea of living with Jesus. If you are ever going to effectively walk in your relationship with Jesus Christ, one of the greatest things you can learn is to die daily. You will never learn to walk with Jesus as long as me ongoingly is living. That's what he's talking about. He said, when I was with you, that's what I had to do every day. I had to put on Christ. I had to to learn him and know him and imitate him. But I also had to look at myself as dead. Man, because he said, you know what? I would never choose to suffer unless... Paul was dead. I would never choose to go through the things that I go with. I would never never choose to go through insults. I would never choose to go through any of those things if Paul was alive. But as Paul died and Christ lived, something amazing happened. I started to walk down those paths that I never thought I would. You want to take serious steps of faith? Put on Christ and die to yourself. And then I'd say, watch out. Now, what he's trying to say here, and if you can just imagine a balance here, remember those old school scales? Is that the idea is, is the more that Todd lives, Christ lives less in his life. But the more Todd then dies, Christ lives more. In other words, Christ and Todd can't live at the same time. You can't take Christ and Todd and put them up there. In order for Christ to truly be exalted, in order for me to live for Jesus, that's what he's trying to say. Todd must decrease. It almost sounds like John the Baptist. Remember that where he said, I must decrease so that he might what? Increase. Paul says, that was my ongoing daily battle. Now, here's what I want to show you, okay? He was trying to get across them then. This affected everything that I did. In other words, it's not even just a one-time event. It was I made this a way of life for myself. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. How did it affect then his communication? Verse two, or chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, look at this, with lofty speech or wisdom. See, the idea behind lofty speech or wisdom is to put myself on display. Just this last weekend, I don't know if you've ever talked to a one-upper before. Have you ever had a talk with a one-upper? I was on this plane, and I'm kind of interacting with this lady, and I'm praying, oh, man, God, would you help me give me an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with her? And I'm sitting there, and so I, she looks at me, and she goes, oh, where are you from? And I said, oh, Simi Valley. She goes, oh, wow, I'm sorry. And I go, why? You know, I was, like, confused. What's wrong with Simi Valley? She goes, well, you know, I mean, it must be kind of hard just to live away, you know, suburbs, stuff like that. And all of a sudden, I'm, like, feeling bad about me. I go, well, where do you live? She goes, oh, I live in Long Beach. And I'm going, Long Beach. And she goes, oh, what do you do for a living? And I go, oh, I'm a pastor. And she goes, oh, I mean, that's good. But, and then all of a sudden what she did came to the surface. And have you ever noticed what you find yourself doing? All of a sudden, everything in me wanted to be me. 
me, me. And so I start fishing, and I'm so, I'm so embarrassed by this, but I started fishing for opportunities to talk about me. She's sitting there, me, 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 and here's Todd with the Holy Spirit inside of him going, me, me. Paul said, though, in my communication even, when I started to learn what it meant to have Christ exalted and Paul diminished, it changed what I talked about. It changed how I communicated with people. It changed how I interacted with them. Pretty soon now, Todd doesn't need to be put on display because Todd's dead. What matters is who? Christ. So now inside of marriages, one of the major reasons marriages don't get along or that, that don't work, communication. Why? Because I see this every time a couple comes into my office to sit there and talk to me about their marriage. It is just me, 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 me. And they're always confused when at the end of it, what I'm saying to them is one of my greatest things I will do for you is help you die so that Christ might live. But it's not just that idea. In fact, the word lofty speech just has to do with this man, look at me. It wasn't just that, but look at verse 4. He said, as Paul died and Christ lived in me, he said, my speech and my message now were not implausible words of wisdom. That word plausible is probably not a good translation there. It probably just means persuasive. In other words, what he said is, is, I didn't play Jedi mind tricks on you. I don't know if you've ever seen Star Wars, but there was the Jedi, you know, and they would sit there and go... We will be going into town. And somebody would go, okay, you go on into town. In other words, I didn't manipulate you. I didn't take advantage of you. I didn't try to argue with you. I didn't learn those strings to pull to get you to cry, to get you to make decisions that I wanted to. Man, one of my greatest regrets in speaking to high school students for all the time that I spoke to them was I always knew is that I could get high school students to the point if I had the right band and I had the right stories and I could get them crying, I could get them to come to Jesus. And Paul says, I didn't do that to you. I didn't play with you. Have you ever noticed how much of our communication is playing games with people? Paul says, I didn't do that. Why? Because Paul was so great. He said, no, as Paul died and Christ lived, I just talked to you like Jesus talked to, would talk to you. What started coming out of my mouth was, was words that Jesus would say. I watched him. He didn't play with people. He didn't toy with people. He told them exactly what they needed to hear. And he said, that's what I did with you. I didn't pull punches. I didn't do anything like that. But I love this. It not only did it, was it this idea that it, that it changed his speech, but look at verse 3. He says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And that word weakness is something we don't do very well. In fact, in our thinking, if I'm going to really be able to do something, I can't be weak. I have to be what? Strong. I need to be the one that's in charge. In fact, all the time, people will come into Cornerstone and they'll say, who's in charge? Todd's in charge. Oh, God help us if Todd's in charge. 
No, in fact, the reality of the Christian life that Paul's going to actually share with us in this, if you want true power, you become weak. And by the way, he was just following Jesus. And when Jesus came, he didn't come in a power play, did he? He's going to come the second time, and it's going to be a power play. Don't get me wrong. But the first time Jesus came, he came as the meek, humble servant. That's what he came as. Now, what was the weakness that Paul's talking about? Let me just kind of build this out for you. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 10.10 so you can kind of understand what he meant by this idea that I came to you in weakness. His opponents, he's kind of talking about what his opponents said about him. And in verse 10, it says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but look at this. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. In other words, here's Paul and he shows up. And from what we understand about it, from especially when you get to like Galatians 4, 13 and 14, kind of in that area. It says actually he had some kind of an ailment, probably a chronic type of ailment that he always had. And when he came amongst the Corinthians, the idea was, I get it, I didn't look all that hot. Not only that, but this idea of speech might mean that he actually might have had some type of a speech impediment. We don't know, but there was something there. Now generally you know this, whenever you come into a situation like that, Anybody that I know of tries to hide it. If you don't believe me, next time you get a blemish, a.k.a. zit on your face, how many of you go, highlight, put a circle around it, hey, just wondering to know, a little weakness here. But Paul actually said, you know what I did? I did something different than most of you would have expected. Now watch this. Go back with me, or go with me a few pages over to 1 Corinthians 12. Well, I'll show you what he did with it. Or 2 Corinthians 12, sorry. 2 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 8. The first time he dealt with his weakness, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. The idea is I got down on my hands and knees and I begged God that it should leave me. Now watch this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for, look at this, here's this word, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Did you catch that? He said, actually, what I did was, is I went ahead in my weakness and let myself get lowered because as I was lowered, who got raised? Jesus. I'll never forget sitting in a, in a room. It was Francis and I, and we were talking to Johnny Erickson Tata. And Francis looked at him and goes, has anybody ever like, tried to pray for you to be able to not be in your wheelchair? And she kind of smiled at him and looked over at him. And I'll never forget this. She said, you know what? I'm trying to think what I could have actually accomplished if God hadn't have put me in this wheelchair. She said, isn't it funny that this wheelchair became the means of me being a spokesman for Jesus unlike anyone else? She became weak. But actually she became what? Strong. 
don't have to hide from our weaknesses. But we're great hiders, aren't we? Man, we're all good hiders in here. That's why I wore a baggy shirt. We love to hide those things that make us feel inadequate, but actually what Paul said is those things actually might be a way in which Jesus Christ is exalted. We don't glory in him and brag about him, but the idea is, is he said, look, the beauty of what happened was is I just came amongst you, and because maybe my appearance didn't look so good, in fact, he'd already been beat up a lot of times, he was worn out, he had a problem, obviously, at this point, maybe speaking a little bit, But he said, isn't it funny that God used that for you to come to know Jesus? In fact, look at his salvo. I love what he does in verse 5. He said, all this happened that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said the only thing left in that was is because Christ was exalted and Paul kind of became a nobody is that then you weren't going to ask Paul into your heart. You would then ask the correct way, Jesus into your heart. Man, I look back on my speaking seriously with high school students and I'm so fearful that in all those times I spoke to kids and I manipulated them and I got them to come forward and I got them to cry and I got them the music playing just the right way, how many of them asked that moment or asked me into their heart, not Jesus? Moms and dads in here. You want kids to fall in love with Jesus? Get weak. Let them see you being dependent on Jesus. Don't hide your flaws from them. Instead, show them these flaws. Why? So that Jesus Christ might be exalted. Teach them what it means to be able to die to yourself so that Christ might live. Teach them what it's like to follow Jesus Christ. Teach them what it is to be bold about Jesus. And when people insult you and mock you, you're able to look at your kids in the eye and help them to understand this privilege that Jesus Christ has given us that we might become less so that he might become greater. Husbands and dads, you want to be a strong leader? Get weak. I know that seems so counterintuitive. Men are taught to be strong, that machismo. To somehow weigh it out in front of them like somehow I have arrived and I know what I'm doing. Let me tell you something. The greatest leader of all time didn't come like that. When Jesus Christ came, he was just a simple, humble man. And this is what Paul said. That's how I came amongst you. Three questions I have for you kind of to finish off. And I'm going to bring Spencer up here in a little while. I'll let him explain Lord's Supper to you. But let me ask you actually four questions. Where do you see see me changing you? And you can fill in your town, whatever you want to do. Where do you see this culture changing you? Have you done an assessment of yourself to actually look at the fact of what is the stuff that's, that's coming down on me? Here's a second question. Are you a daily student of Jesus? Do you know him and follow him and read about him and mimic him? Is that a part of your ongoing life? 
Do you have a daily practice of crucifixion where you die so that Christ might live? Do you have a way in which you walk through this process? Just the last thing is, do you want to see yourself and others changed? Because if you do, you will learn everything I've talked about before. So with that being said, can we just pray together? I'll bring Spencer up, we'll bring the band up, and we'll walk through the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the truth of your word. God, I beg you. Would you help this church to die well every day so that Christ might live well every day? In your precious name we pray, amen.